National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, September 13th, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges and opportunities in both American and global security. We've got a great show for you today. We're going to look at the global south and what is happening across these regions of the world as the liberal democratic order of the Western world struggles against the rising challenge of autocratic nations that are aligning together, determined to change the world order. The global south is a term that we use to describe the the developing nations of the world. With rapidly expanding populations, growing economies, and abundant natural resources that are needed for clean energy and the global economy in general, the nations of the global south are starting to wield important political influence. With us today to discuss this topic is Professor Rajan Menon. He's the director of the Grand Strategy Program at Defense Priorities, which is a D.C.-based, uh, Washington, D.C.-based think tank. He also has held the Ann and Bernard Spitzer Chair in Political Science at the City College of New York. He's, a, he's also been a re- senior research scholar at the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia University and a global ethics fellow at the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs. He was also previously the Monroe J. Rathbone Distinguished Presser, Professor of International Relations and Chairman of the International Relations Department at Lehigh University, and he's also taught at Vanderbilt and Columbia Universities. Menon has served as a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, a fellow at the New America Foundation, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, a visiting fellow at the Harriman Institute at Columbia University, senior advisor and academic fellow at the Carnegie Corporation of New York, and a director of Eurasian Policy Studies at the National Bureau of Asian Research. He's received fellowships and grants from a wide variety of funds, and he's blogged at the, he blog, blogs at the Huffington Post and writes monthly for the National Interest, and his analytical and opinion pieces have appeared in a wide variety of publications, including the Los Angeles Times, Newsweek, the Chicago Tribune, and many others. He's also been a commentator on National Public Radio, ABC, BBC, CNN, MSNBC, and a, a number of other stations across the world. He earned his doctorate at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Professor Rajan Menon, thank you so much for joining us here today on National Security This Week. Thank you for inviting me, John. Pleasure to be here. Uh, So where are you sitting this morning for our show? I am at the moment in New Hampshire in a tiny village called North Sutton. I divide my time between New Hampshire and New York City. All right. And before we got on the air, I heard it was raining pretty heavily there. It's been raining cats and dogs all summer, and it's (laughs) raining today. Well... Send us some of that rain our way because we could really use yeah, it. Yeah, you do. We're just telling you you had a drought, so yeah. we'll try to do that. Yeah. So, Professor, you've had clearly I, from the 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 introduction I just did, you had an amazing, distinguished career in the field of international relations. Uh, what was it that attracted you to that topic uh, of international relations when you decided to, to start your career? You know, before I decided to become an academic, I didn't really quite know what academics was all about or even what I wanted to do with my life. It's not unusual for young men and women. I was inspired by a particular professor of mine, and I realized that he got paid to teach young people to read what he wanted and write what he wanted, and he didn't really have a boss in any particular sense because the department chairman is many things or chairperson, but he or she is not a boss of faculty members. So it gives you a wide latitude to do things, The key is you have to be independently able to monitor that vast amount of time because no one is telling you to do X or Y by A or B or C date. So I've had a good run. I really enjoyed it. It's been fun. I spent 44 years as an academic and decided that I'd grown up and now decided I needed to decide what I wanted to do. Yeah, when you when you when you sort of uh, step out of the academic world and kind of enter into the into the policy arena. Uh, things change quite a bit. I, I have to think you. I, before we got on the air, you and I talked about the fact you've kind of been in and out of government a little bit between academia and government roles. Uh, I have to imagine there's a. It's a. It must be a very freeing feeling to get out of government and go back to the ad- academic world. 
It is, but you know, it's also a different world because policymakers need to know right up front what the problem is, what the solutions are, what the downside of each solution is, and the upside. And given that, what ought to be done? There are draconian deadlines, and it's a it's a very different kind of world. It's not for all academics. And I had a very nice time. I also, since leaving government many years ago, consult for various government agencies. And, and then, then too, the, the writing mode, topics, deadlines, all it's all very different. But I, I find the two worlds quite compatible because people often write to, in some small way, make suggestions for policy. And when you get a chance to actually see how those ideas translate into policy, it's uh, it's very interesting to watch. It's been it's been an honor and a privilege to do that. Yeah. So there are many topics I want to cover with you today, but I want to start uh, with, with uh, maybe one of the more serious uh, global security challenges that exists right now. And then I think that's going to kind of lead us uh, into the core of our discussions for uh, throughout the rest of the show. Uh, Professor Menon, you've been publishing a number of commentaries uh, over many months now on the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the role a power like China could potentially play in helping to negotiate a peaceful resolution to that conflict. Uh, let me start with this. How, how do you personally uh, see the Russian invasion of Ukraine in the context of competition between the NATO alliance and the European Union nations on one side and Russia on the other side with some of the nations that are that are backing Russia's play right now? But before I, I answer the question specifically, John, let me say that, as I said to you when before we got on the air, I do almost nothing these days other than follow the war in Ukraine obsessively or talk to people such as yourselves about it. I've been to wartime Ukraine three times in uh, last, you know, last June, then in December, and then this June, I hope to go again. And I've had a chance actually to go to the front lines. Mm. So... After the Cold War ended, there was a debate about how to reorganize Europe. You'll remember that when World War II ended, the United States had a chance. It was the dominant power in the world, and it set up um, NATO and was very much in favor of what eventually became the European Union. And we had a very long peace, certainly outside the so-called Soviet bloc of peace in Europe. It was a big success, no matter what. It may have had its imperfections. But it was a big success. So come the end of the Cold War, the question was, well, what do you do now with what remains of the Soviet Union, the biggest state? There were 15 states that came into being when the Soviet Union collapsed. The big state, of course, was Russia, huge country, 11 or so time zones, some of it in Asia, some of it in Eurasia. So some people said, look, the Cold War is over. Let us transition away from NATO and create an all-embracing European-wide security order in which Russia is a part because it's no longer an adversary. So the last president of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, was in favor of that to, for a time, so were the Germans, but the United States was in the end not keen because NATO had worked very well. Why dismantle it? Why change it? And there were several central European countries, Poland, uh, the Czech Republic, Baltic states, they didn't all become members at the same time. There were waves of NATO expansion who wanted to join and who did join. The EU, similarly, wanted to contribute to the consolidation of peace and prosperity in East Central Europe in other ways, through economic ways. Now, whatever the intention of NATO and the EU may have been, the Russians over time, and this precedes Putin, I should add, it's not a Putin obsession, began to view this with some apprehension. The 90, in the 90s, they were weak. Their GDP had collapsed by 30%. Under Putin, it survived and so on. But they, they viewed this as a kind of movement into what they had seen as a great power as their sphere of influence. Now, we might say, well, we don't like spheres of influence, but if you look at our own history, we've been pretty good at keeping spheres of influence. So NATO expansion became really the issue that made for a very tense U.S.-Russia relationship, especially after 2008, when NATO in principle opened the door to two countries, as you know, Ukraine and Georgia. Ukraine has a special place in the Russian psyche. It shares a border. It's a fellow Slavic country. There are Russians who believe that Ukraine and Russia are one people, including Mr. Putin. 
So the prospect of Ukraine getting into NATO was always troublesome. And I'll, I'll stop with this in terms of answering your question. Although that background is undeniable, that NATO expansion added tension, I do not think that the argument that many have made that NATO expansion per se triggered the invasion of Ukraine. And I'll tell you why. On February 24th, 2022, uh, when Mr. Putin invaded Ukraine, uh, there was no movement in terms of Ukraine's membership in NATO since 2008. That is, Ukraine was no closer to getting into NATO. Now, why was that? Because when President Bush, the younger President George W. Bush, said to NATO, open the door to Ukraine and Georgia, there was no stomach to do it for exactly the reason. These were both countries bordering on Europe. Ukraine in particular was a sensitive issue. So nothing had happened. So that was not, I think, the reason. And those who say, well, the Russians faced an existential threat and invaded, I'm not persuaded by that. Do I have an explanation why he did it? I can offer a speculative speculative explanation, but I've spoken for long enough in terms of the first question, so we can get to that eventually. No, that, 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 that's, a, that's a good summary. It's, it's, it's this constant debate going on right now in the national security arena here in the United States and over in Europe right now. You know, what, what was it that really triggered Russia to attack Ukraine? And is there anything we can do to kind of mollify Russia to maybe get them to feel better about this situation, really of their own making, frankly, at this point? So another article you penned uh, fairly recently said we, sh- we shouldn't rule out China successfully brokering a deal to kind of end the Russian aggression in Ukraine. What what role, let's, let's take this more broadly first, what role is the People's Republic of China playing on the international stage these days? I mean, they succeeded in reopening, a, you know, diplomatic relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran, no small feat. Uh, probably there were a lot of things happening uh, in that movement anyway. China stepped in and helped to uh, finish the, the task. The Chinese have have also been making significant inroads around the world, particularly with the expansion uh, of the BRICS uh, economic group. That's BRICS stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Uh, How should we think about China's international diplomatic engagement around the world right now? Just some quick background. In 1976, when Mao died, China was a largely peasant country and a very poor one and very much committed to a centralized Soviet-style model of development. When the next leader, Deng Xiaoping, came along, his attitude was summarized by something he said, I don't care whether a cat is black or white as long as it catches mice. In other words, he said, let us do what is necessary to make our country prosperous, advance, and powerful, and to reclaim a role that we had for hundreds of years. The, the the decline of China really dates to about the 18th century, give or take. They were then, before that, a very substantial power. So what they did was marketize, liberalize, allow foreign investment, invest in other countries, send large numbers of students to American and other universities. I'm sure you've seen this when you've taught. And this paid off in huge measure between 78 and until recently the average chinese rate of growth was eight or nine maybe even ten percent there are very few countries that stand there for that long it became a powerhouse so china under mao and china today is very different xi jinping is a different kind of leader he believes that well what Deng Xiaoping did was very good but at some point if you liberalize marketize open up your society to all sorts of influences the Chinese Communist Party is going to be under threat. Very aware of the collapse of the Soviet Union and what happened in Tiananmen Square in China in 1990. So he's a centralizer, he's an authoritarian, he is less keen on wholesale economic reform if he believes that that will create trouble. There is no question, however, that as the Chinese economy has grown, it's depending on the measure, equal to or somewhat greater than the U.S. I think it's slightly lower. Never mind. But it's out there in high-speed rail, in high-tech energy, in AI, quantum computing, scientific research. It's a different entity. It's become much more powerful. And the two views of China, one is it wants to overthrow 
not militarily, but in some fashion, what has been Pax Americana, the American-led global order that's been around since 1945. Now, of course, that doesn't sit well in Washington. The other view is, well, it doesn't really want to do that. It's too deeply embedded into this order, because of trade, technology transfer, and so on. The thing to do is to make give it a stake so it becomes, as someone said, a responsible stakeholder. So there's a debate now about what is China? Is it a threat? Is it an opportunity? Is it something in between? The Chinese, as you alluded to in your comments, have very large global ambitions. So there's the Belt and Road Initiative, their economic program of infrastructure that spans from Europe all the way to Southeast Asia. There is another example that you mentioned, the the rapprochement that was uh, engineered, shall we say, by Xi Jinping between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Now, as regards Russia, the time, for reasons we can get into later, for any kind of settlement in Ukraine, in my view, is not existent at present because of political conditions as well as military conditions. But when people look to would-be power brokers, China's name comes up all the time. We, the United States, are not in a position to do that because whatever we may think, the Russians view us as co-belligerents. The Chinese, they trust somewhat more. The Ukrainians don't entirely trust the Chinese, but they understand that the Chinese could have done a lot more damage by shipping large amounts of weaponry to Russia, which they have not done, or doing things that wholesale are violations of the sanctions that would shred the sanctions. They haven't done that either. So for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Rajan Menon, and we're discussing the rising influence of the nations that comprise the Global South. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. So, Professor, I mentioned, you know, BRICS in our last segment. Some six countries have recently applied to join the BRICS economic grouping, and there's been considerable discussion about the BRICS shifting away from using the U.S. dollar as sort of the currency of choice. Uh, China China deals in yuan nowadays, most uh, predominantly. Uh, India just made a, a, a large oil purchase uh, using the rupee, uh, which they'd never done before. Is the BRICS grouping a, a serious economic challenge for the United States or, or for the European Union or other trade groupings? And what are the implications of this economic block as it grows, uh, abandoning the U.S. dollar in the international system? Is that something we should be concerned about? So first of all, the BRICS brings together some fairly substantial countries measured whether by land area, population, or the economy. So China and India are examples. Brazil is an example. And so is Russia, despite the difficulties that it's in now in Ukraine. More about that later. The The question about the BRICS is, okay, there's a BRICS, but is there any mortar? <laughs> uh, I'd like to claim that as my line. It's actually something that a journalist whom I follow closely at the Financial Times said. That is, what is it that holds this group together because you have India and China that are at odds on several fronts, including having a disputed border over which they clash periodically. Then you have India and Brazil who are democracies, despite their blemishes on that front, and China and Russia who are not. To add to that, uh, there's been an attempt to expand the BRICS, and most people say, well, that suggests that it's a magnet and it's expanding. But if you expand a coalition and bring in more and more countries that are more different than they are alike, the question is, does the entity operate cohesively? So the question is, is this a top chop? Is it something that moves from a top chop-like forum into becoming a force that actually makes significant changes. So let's come to one significant change that's been discussed, and that is the displacement of the U.S. dollar. Now, for various reasons, the dollar's heyday has passed because it was once the unit for denominating value. So barrels of oil were in dollars for storing value, storing foreign exchange, and for paying for international trade. This gave the U.S. enormous advantages because no other country can print money that it wants or have countries buy its bonds 
with the assurance that their investments are safe. But now, if I remember the figures correctly, the dollar in the last three years has gone from 80% of all transactions and foreign exchange reserves to about 60%. So it is still the single largest currency. But its, it's um, profile has been reduced because of the rise of the euro that's adopted by most members, not all, of the European Union and the yuan. But my view is that the BRICs are divided on the question of wanting to do away with the dollar. There are two countries, such as India, okay, it wants to introduce the rupees to save on dollar for an exchange, because dollar, dollars are precious, but does it want to displace the dollar? Maybe Russia and China do. I don't think they can. You may find a decline further in the dollar's value, but the dollar is going to be unrivaled, in my view, as a currency, because getting rid of it is more aspirational than it is practical. Uh, diminishing its role, perhaps. I will say that one of the things that has led to this debate over the dollar, which goes back to, by the way, Charles de Gaulle in France, who thought the Americans have this extraordinary, exorbitant privilege, as he put it, of having this currency that gives them so much power. It uh, has been the imposition of sanctions on Russia and, a, and the confiscation of some $300 billion in Russian uh, dollar-denominated assets held abroad, and countries like China and others have asked, well, could one day we be on the firing line in this respect? So yes, there, there is a discussion about it. Some uh, There is a discussion in the BRICS. The question is whether it's feasible. So this raises the question, well, exactly what do the BRICS agree upon? And if they're more than a coalition, what is it that we can expect them to do that will change what we know to be the operation of the world economic and political system. So I think that's still a work in progress. And and people there are people who hype it as this major development. I'm more in the watch and see mode. I don't dismiss it, but I think it's yet to prove itself. So uh, a, a disturbing number of nations on the African continent have uh, have seen military coup d'etats in recent years. Uh, not that that's a new phenomenon. Unfortunately, Africa has been plagued by that for, for many decades. But some of those nations have aligned with Russia and have invited in Russia's private military contractor group, the Wagner Group, uh, to assist in providing security. And the guise is that uh, the, the, the new coup uh, leaders are inviting Russia in to help deal with uh, the threat of terrorism, combating terrorism. But in application, it's pretty clear the Wagner Group is being used by these, these strongmen to put down internal resistance to their political control in these respective nations. Uh, we, we've also already watched throughout the entire Syrian civil war, Russian military forces raise Syrian villages and cities to the ground to suppress uh, opposition to Bashar al-Assad's uh, continued dictatorship. Uh, the Iranian regime has uh, has also seen strong support from Moscow, and Tehran is backing Russia's operations uh, inside Ukraine today. Uh, in Myanmar, we've seen a close, re, close re alignment, really, between the military junta and Beijing, uh, a little bit with Moscow, too, but definitely with Beijing. Uh, primarily, I think, for economic and security relationships there. H how should we think about these dictatorships uh, around the world being aligned with Beijing and Moscow? What, what threat does that pose today and into the future uh, for America and more broadly for the liberal democratic order around the world? Yeah, it's interesting you ask this question because it was the question at an event that I uh, attended recently, and there was a big discussion about this. So first, again, some historical perspective. Our narrative has been that we stand for two things, democratic values and the rules-based international order. But we live in a world of power politics where states are driven by national interest and often pragmatic concerns, and they deviate from their values. So it should needs to be understood that we have a long history of dealing with, but even actively supporting non-democratic countries. I exhibit A today, is the government in Egypt of Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, who yeah. came to power in a coup shortly after the coup, shot and killed about, not he personally, but his army, at least 600 peaceful demonstrators, and not much was said here. And in, during the Cold War, there are many examples of this. This doesn't make us uniquely bad. I'm not engaged in bashing the United States, but simply pointing out that there's always a tension between values and practical, practical choices. I think there's no question that in Africa, their democracy has had a troubled existence. Wagner has stepped into the breach in a way that no Western country 
wants to do by putting troops on the ground to actively protect a military dictatorship that's under fire. Not in the way that Wagner does it anyway. It's a, it's a private company. The full name is Wagner PMC, private military company. Uh, um, founded by the late uh, Mr. Pogosian, whose uh, plane just fell out of the air. But more about <laughs> that, and killing, more about that in a second. So there's no question that Wagner is on the ground, and what it gets in return are stakes in raw materials and gold, various things that it ships back to Russia, and has made Mr. Prigozhin a very wealthy man. He made his money in lots of ways, but that's one way. But it's important to understand that when military coups happen in Africa, they happen for complicated reasons having to do with the internal politics of that country. So it's not as if Wagner is able to kind of remake the shape of Africa, not to deny that it's uh, it, it has been influential. It's interesting that when some of these coups occur, our reaction has generally been, this is bad, we want the military out of politics, that's how the democracy strives. But very often on the street, the view of the common man or woman is, these rulers didn't deliver much to us, they generally cozy it up to the West. Some of them may have even been seen as uh, Western puppets. This was the case recently in Niger, where we view we view the democratic government as been has being overthrown, and the view on the streets is very much. And there wasn't there were huge protests saying, "How dare the army do this?" So there's another disconnect to how we see it and how they see it. That said, you cannot have the consolidation of democracy in a government if there is no civilian control of the military. This is true in Africa, it's true in Pakistan, it's been true in the history of Indonesia, it's true in Myanmar, it's true in Bangladesh, and the list goes on. So Wagner is a factor, but it's operating within a context of complex domestic conditions that gives it opportunity so we're going to take uh, just a short break to recognize our sponsor, the Cybersecurity Summit, and we will be right back here on National Security This Week. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit series continues this summer with summits in Raleigh-Durham, Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, Detroit, Chicago, Philadelphia, Atlanta, and Kansas City. You'll hear from leaders in the field of cybersecurity, including business, government, infrastructure, military, homeland security, law enforcement, and more. For a list of dates and keynote speakers or to register, visit CybersecuritySummit.com. The Cybersecurity Summit Series, connecting senior-level executives with renowned information security experts and cutting-edge solution providers to protect today's enterprise. Visit CybersecuritySummit.com for details. And we're back here on National Security This Week, and we're covering the rise of the Global South and what is a potentially a new non-aligned movement with serious implications for long-term American national security interests. Our guest is Professor Rajan Menon. Professor Menon, before the break, we were talking about China and Russia backing various military juntas or dictatorships around the world. Uh, maybe a little bit about the benefit to China and Russia for backing these regimes and, and the challenges resulting for America and the liberal democracies uh, of the world from, from this situation. Let's expand our, our discussion a bit on the challenges as the global order is shifting somewhat continuously right now. Lots of things happening. Many countries around the world aren't choosing to, you know, quote unquote, align uh, with the United States and, and our allies. Uh, nor are they specifically and clearly aligning with China and Russia. Uh, I, I would refer to this movement as a new global non-alignment movement, wherein we see nations uh, pitch their needs to both uh, the Western liberal democratic order and to the autocrats uh, to see which side will provide greater benefits uh, to their nation. Sort of a, you know, who, who's got the best bid approach as to who they're going to connect with. Uh, regarding economic ties, it could be uh, political activities on the international stage or, or even how or whether or not they, reserve, they observe the traditional global rules that we've sort of played by for many, many decades now. Is there, in your view, an, an emerging non-aligned movement across the global south? And are Brazil and India sort of leading this non-aligned movement, uh, as you, we sort of alluded to a bit in our discussion on the BRICS? There's actually always been a non-aligned movement, that is a, a group of countries who hew to that policy, and it began in the early period of the Cold War. 
And the rationale for it is rather similar to the rationale used by countries that don't want to formally ally with one side or the other. And it is this. We stand to lose if we get identified with one side or the other in a conflict where we are not very powerful. There's the old saying, when the elephants fight, the (laughs) grass gets trampled, right? So there was a desire to not be put in that position. But there was a more pragmatic, a certain pragmatic desire, and that is that they believed that they would have much more room for maneuver and independence if they were if they were a third force. So this was the thinking of people like Gamal Abdel Nasser, President of Egypt, uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, the Prime Minister of India, Yosef Bros Tito of Yugoslavia. His his regime was communist, but it was fervently anti-Soviet because there was a long history of between him and, and Moscow. So the non-aligned movement today or the tendency that you described comes out of that out of that tradition. And the impulses remain the same. That is to say, it's better for us not to sign on to any permanent military alliances with either side and to act in between for all the reasons that I'm suggesting. Arguably the most powerful of the non-aligned countries is India. China is not seen that way, followed by Brazil. And as you know, recently at the recent G20 uh, summit, Prime Minister Narendra Modi uh, was able to bring the uh, African Union. He did that before the summit, but the African Union, about 50 plus countries, is now a member of the G20. And his argument was that most of Humanity lives in the global south, which is a catch-all term for countries below a certain um, um, standard of living. It's arguable now that China is really a a global south country. It it sees itself that way. Because we account for such a substantial proportion of humanity, we ought to be represented in important entities like the G20. Whereas uh, the Western focus or the preference of Western countries, the G20, was to focus heavily on Ukraine, Modi shifted it to the adverse effects on the global south of the Ukraine war, rising interest rates, adding to more debt, food security, and um, climate change, and so on. And interestingly enough, at partly at India's behest, the final communique of the G20, there was even a debate about whether it would occur. By the way, Russia and China both stayed away, but for different reasons. Uh, It spoke of the um, conflict or war in Ukraine. The previous G20 said the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Notable shift there. was very much noted by Ukrainian uh, officials. So you mentioned the G20 uh, summit that just took place in in New Delhi. There was actually a, a pretty huge deal that was signed uh, the U.S., India, Saudi Arabia, and the and the EU uh, unveiled a massive rail and ports deal on kind of the sidelines of the G20, and and many are saying uh, it's it was really kind of President Biden's efforts to sort of push back against China's Belt and Road Initiative, the global infrastructure project uh, that you talked about earlier. Uh, do you see it sort of the same way? Has has this been a, a diplomatic coup on the part of the United States and the EU, and sort of a pushback against China's expansion? I think there's no question there's been a debate about how to deal with China's appeal and influence in the global south, whether through primarily political and military means, but also economic means. In many ways, the strong suit of the West is its economy. And so there has been a lot of discussion about what can we do on the issues that matter for people in the global south, especially the poorest of the poor. Because governments in the global south can have purchase only if they are, in some fashion, able to deliver on those promises. Some of them are not democracies, per se. So the government of Rwanda, for example, that styles itself as the Singapore of Africa, has been relatively good on some of these performance indicators. So should we have um, new transport corridors? Should we increase the capitalization of the... World Bank, should we become an even bigger, we are now the biggest funder, but should we become an even bigger funder of the World Food Program? Should we get much more serious about expanding aid to 
energy transition toward green energy in the global south. There's definitely that line of thinking. Now, India is an interesting case, right? During the Cold War, it was not aligned with the Soviet Union, but it was very close to the Soviet Union. In the post-Cold War period, India hasn't become an ally of the United States, but its strategic convergence with the United States is remarkable. Its economic reforms have emphasized much more markets and foreign investment and so on. There are huge numbers of Indian students in the United States. Indian military and security delegations come back and forth all the time. And the Soviet monopoly over the Indian market is over because American companies, along with French and Israelis, and maybe one day the Japanese, are moving in. So India is seen in the United States as a country that has a certain influence and legitimacy and traction, shall we say, in the global south and can be with the United States in some areas a partner for competing with China and the global south because India certainly does not want more Chinese influence anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Two kid two biggest kids on the block in Asia, right? Uh, and now that right. India is the is the most populous uh, nation on the planet. Uh, if we could, uh, Professor, let's briefly take a look at different regions of the world. Maybe give us uh, some comments on, on what you see transpiring among the nations in these regions as they sort of, I, I don't know, challenge the U.S. and China to compete uh, for their favors. And I'd like to start with uh, the nations in the South Pacific. I, I just saw an article in Reuters uh, a couple of days ago talking about the, the prime ministers of two small island nations, uh, Tuvalu and uh also in in the Caribbean, uh, Antigua and Barbuda, trying to use the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea to force some of the bigger nations to to address these issues of climate change, uh, because these these island nations are under the threat of rising seas. I mean, we know that the seas are rising. Uh, the question is how fast are they going to rise, and how quickly might some of these island nations? Kiribati is another one. Uh, the Maldives, uh, all of these countries, uh, these island nation countries are under threat. Uh, how do you see these countries sort of competing for uh, benefits between China and the United States? Climate change, as you rightly put it, is a huge threat to them. And you mentioned Kiribati. If I'm not mistaken, if current trends continue of rising sea levels, Kiribati uh, could literally disappear. Now, taken as individuals, they are so tiny that they don't have much leverage. And even if they banded together, they don't have a lot of muscle and clout. But in international organizations, by making tactical or strategic alliances with like-minded people, they can compensate a little bit for their weakness. So your point about their being attracted to multilateral, multi lateral organizations or international courts to put issues that are important to them on the front burner is really quite correct. And I would say in these countries, climate change is a huge deal. There's a general sense in the in the developing world, the global south, and this is also true of the of the region we're now talking about, the Pacific and the Caribbean, that they've been left holding the bag. In other words, the West developed ever since the Industrial Revolution into wealthy, industrialized, technologically advanced countries. It was not that they did it knowing that hydrocarbons would pollute the earth, but coal and then oil were the drivers of the Industrial Revolution, and that made the developing countries wealthy. Now they've woken up to climate change and have said they want to do something about it. They can do far more than they are, but they have, in some sense, a debt of obligation to help countries that they want to transition away from hydrocarbon-based fuels into alternative forms, because those alternative forms of energy are sometimes technologically beyond the reach of these countries or are very expensive. So there's a whole question of, who is responsible and who is obligated to do what. And my own sense is that to accelerate climate transition worldwide, including in our country, it's a long-term investment in the futures of our grandchildren. In terms of the size of the American economy, the, the lift or the ask is not terribly big. 
But the problem is a collective action problem. So countries get together and say, we will commit to X amount of reduction. So they did in Paris. Now, we know that the Paris target is already shot to pieces. Yeah, yeah. Why? Because we live in a world of sovereign states, and there's no central enforcer to monitor who's doing what and then issue compliance orders and issue punishments in the event of non-compliance. So the international system politically is not designed very well to deal with problems such as global warming, climate change, we'll call it what you will. The climate change is a huge issue in the areas that you mentioned, no question about it. Yeah. Uh, so if we could return back to the African continent, we talked about Russia's uh, investment of uh, the Wagner private military contractor uh, group to back some of the military hunters. China, on the other hand, has been using... Uh, loans and delivering infrastructure development as part of uh, Belt and Road uh, to help them extract natural resources uh, from African nations. Uh, are, are the U.S. and our allies, are, are we doing enough to compete with China and Russia on the African continent uh, to try and further democracy and the rule of law uh, on that very, very important continent, frankly? Some people are saying that, uh, you know, it's really, we've been thinking about this century as being the, the China century, but if you look at the the projections for the importance of Africa on the global economy for this century, maybe we should be referring to this as the African century. Right. So the Chinese have been very active in different parts of the world, including in Africa. On the one hand, if you look at money and projects, it's clear that they have, in fairly short order, made the Belt and Road into something very substantial. But in Africa and in other countries, such as uh, Sri Lanka, island nations just south of India, there's, a, there's been another side of the question, and that is the Chinese don't give away money for Belt and Road, nor are their interest rates low, their interest rates tend to be high, they drive a hard bargain. And some of these countries now have unsustainable debt burdens that the Chinese have been reluctant to reschedule, they have in some ways restructured, but they don't forgive loans. And there's been a call on the World Bank, the IMF, to help so there's that side of the Belt and Road that needs to be added to the equation before seeing it as an unvarnished success. There's also the question of um, what has been the nature of the interaction between Chinese people associated with Belt and, Ro Belt and Road on the ground and Africans day to day. And there are mixed things there as well. There's no question that there's a sense in which it's believed that the West ought to do more. The West faces, though, competing demands. There's a war in Ukraine. There are many, many unmet domestic needs. There are countries in which budget deficits are such that spending needs to be reined in. So whether the aspiration to shift into a much more active mode and pump more money backed by a strategy you have to answer the question, if you pump all this money, what are you trying to achieve? Right. <laughs> is it democracy promotion? If so, how exactly do you do that? Because look at democracy in the United States or Europe, right? It took centuries to to establish and consolidate itself. And even in this country, women and African-Americans couldn't vote until relatively recently in the country's history. So it's a long process. And there's a whole question of whether we from the outside can engineer this. Now, I'm not saying we can engineer economic development and climate uh, transition uh, easily, but there's a question of will democracy eventually have greater purchase on the ground if people in poor countries feel that it's a system that allows more than just voting, but it actually has shown itself to make the material conditions of their life better. I think that's the challenge. So we have to figure out if you have a certain amount, amount of money, you do some democracy promotion, you do some economic development, but which are we in a position to influence more and what are the greatest needs? I think for most people in these countries, the greatest need is are, are they going to be able to feed their children tomorrow? Are they going to be able to pay uh, for basic commodities because of inflation rates? Is their soil being contaminated by pesticides and so on? Is, for, is forest clear-cutting um, making for soil erosion? Are, is climate change leading to refugee waves where they're trying to flee to a Europe that doesn't particularly want them, and many of them end up dr drowning in the Mediterranean Sea, which is happening as we speak. So those are the burning issues of the day. 
I'm not saying Africans don't want democracy or don't deserve it. They, the answer to both is yes. Public opinion polls show that. But the pressing day-to-day concerns of the average African are somewhat different. I mentioned that many people looked at the coup in Niger with some indifference because they are preoccupied by day-to-day issues of basic subsistence, many of them. And so the question is, can we do better than we have in the past there? Yeah, hunger is a uh, is a powerful uh, motivator. Uh, uh, for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Rajan Menon, and we're discussing the rising influence of the nations that comprise the Global South. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, Professor, we're down, we have about 12 minutes or so left on the show today. Uh, for the last, you know, 45 minutes or so, we've been discussing uh, the development of the, the non-aligned movement across the global south, how it's really kind of gaining strength uh, on the international stage, forcing the Western liberal democracies to compete against these rising autocratic uh, nations like China and Russia. Is the U.S. competing effectively in this new reality we see around the world? In other words, is the U.S. using our tools of national power, diplomacy, the power of information, military and economic power, uh, in, in an effective statecraft, you know, the art and science of statecraft, uh, to sort of, I guess, blunt the expansion of, of influence by the autocrats of the world? I mean, are we using the tools correctly, or, or where are we falling down? I think that historically, most of our focus has been areas that we see as pivotal to the world economically and militarily, that is to say Europe and the Asia-Pacific. It's not that we've been absent from the rest of the world, but it is the rise of China in part, and also the debate about climate change and debt and food security, that has led to the questions that you've alluded to, that is to say, how do we do better and what do we go, how do we go about doing it? I'd say the discussion in terms of what to do now and in the next 10, 20 years or so, is still a work in progress. But we have a situation that, on the one hand, is desirable. Our presidents come and go, which means democracy is working. But sometimes a program begun by President X may not be sustained by President Y or may even be abolished. So I think our largest problem, well, there are two problems. Are we focusing enough resources on it, knowing that it does in the grand scheme of things cost very much? So if you ask average Americans, and this has shown up in polls, not that I've gone around asking people, what percentage of GDP do you believe is devoted to foreign aid, foreign assistance, or the technical term, overseas development assistance? People will come up with like 5%, 10%, 20%, 25%. It's two-tenths of 1%. So it, it's, it's a very small amount. So the question is, if you bumped it up to, say, eight-tenths of 1% or 1%, which is at one point the standard that the global north agreed on and that very few countries meet, and those that do are in Scandinavia. But if the United States did it, we're talking about some serious money. Now, <laughs> once you put money on the ground, you have to worry about a lot of things. One is, is the money going to go for the right causes? Is it going to be stolen? Are projects going to be sustainable? How is the money to be given? Low interest rates, grants, however. What are the priorities? Because there are many competing priorities in these countries. Uh, But that said, it's not a big investment. I think in some ways it serves the cause of democracy and the image of the United States because if you deliver on the ground and make meaningful changes in people's lives, that's probably the best way. In terms of democratic values, you know, let me add, I think perhaps the most important contributions we can make is to be true to those values here at home. When I look at threats to the United States, I don't really worry about China or Russia so much as what we might do to ourselves. Mm. And there are certain challenges here. The other thing that we need to do is we talk about the liberal international um, rules-based international order. Now, this evokes a fair amount of cynicism in the global south. Not that they don't want a rules-based international order, but they say 
Well, after 9-11, what happened to the uh, torture convention? You all just basically decided to ignore it. Or what happened to the Geneva Conventions? What about extraordinary rendition, that is the capture of terror suspects and moving them to countries, sometimes countries that were known to engage in torture, such as Gaddafi's uh, Libya. You talk about the GIA, the um, global um, uh, GATT, the Global Trading System, or the organization, General Agreements on Tariffs and Trade, now called the WTO, right? The United States has often been accused of violating the rules left and right. So you talk about this rules-based order, and then you look the other way or obey it in, uh, obey it in the breach selectively. And as for democracy, you care in some countries, you care in others. Now, I can't, I'm not saying we have to be consistent all the time, but we can be more consistent than we are to give some credence to the fact that we actually mean what we say. We're not just using this to weaponize human rights or weaponize the narrative of rule-based international economic or deflay uh, our adversaries that the values that we profess we really mean. That's So uh, what I'm trying to do is to give a sense of how things look from the perspective of a large number of countries in the global south. So I'm not indicting the United States. I'm not here to indict or praise anyone so much as to understand that the, the way we see things may not be the way that others see things. The biggest challenge in diplomacy is often overcoming the belief that the way you see something may not be at all the way I see something. That doesn't make you right or wrong, but in figuring out how to deal with me, you have to take that into account, because otherwise there can be no meaningful interaction or dialogue for us to get to any kind of a common end. Yeah, that, that, that That's a great point. Uh, so I have one more uh, complex question for you. Uh, we've been talking a, a bit about uh, throughout the show about the fact that China has been investing heavily around the world. China's, you know, really trying to compete with the United States, maybe displace the United States as the most powerful economic entity on the planet. Uh, but there's recently been some uh, some rather significant discussion about China's economic woes and that those woes may be just beginning uh, and that we may not have as much to fear from Chinese expansion efforts uh, as some have believed uh, throughout uh, the last decade or so. Where, where do you stand on this topic? Is China's economy s- sort of sputtering a little bit? Will we see a bit of a retraction of China's global ambitions? I know Xi Jinping now in his third term as the general secretary of the Communist Party, president of China, he, his ambition has really driven uh, this expansion effort uh, by China around the world. Uh, is his ambition going to outlast uh, Chinese economic uh, capability, or, or is he going to find a, a happy medium there? I will say that you have the knack of identifying the really big questions out there. So this is another really big one, wither China. I was at a meeting recently where someone who's very knowledgeable about China, far more than I, said, you know, we have a tendency to see the Chinese as either four feet tall or eight feet tall. And he said, I see the Chinese as five foot eight. In other words, they're either just failing on a massive scale or they are the next thing, best thing since sliced bread. So for, for a while, until quite recently, the narrative is the Chinese are growing by leaps and bounds. Their model is appealing to more and more countries. There's Belt and Road, the Maglev trains, the forefront of artificial intelligence. They're doing this, they're doing that. Large car maker now. This is all true because this has happened in a very, it's happened in your lifetime and mine. We remember the 70s, I think. Well, certainly I'm old enough. I don't know how you I, I remember, it. I remember. Okay, there you go. So there's been this sense that there's this colossus that's developed into a powerful, technologically advanced country. Very different than if, say, uh, Singapore were to do that, which it, which it has done, right? This is a big, powerful country. Lately now, it's all doom and gloom about China. Why? Exports are declining. Growth rates are declining. The main driver of declining growth rates has been Weak consumer demand. Weak consumer demand. People are worried that slow growth means that unemployment could increase. Uh, youth unemployment in China is between 20 and 25 percent. Then there's the huge question of the real, est- real estate sector overbuilding, leverage building, huge amounts of money owed to banks, local governments who have entered the real estate game and are now in huge debt 
and the question of if another real big real estate company collapses, one called Evergrande collapsed some week, uh, weeks ago. There's one now called Country Day that people think are going to collapse. What will be the ripple effects and how will the Chinese economy do this? Now, some people have said, well, Xi Jinping should reduce the degree of centralization, create a more business-friendly environment, right? And just put more money in the hands of people. But that's not the way he thinks. There was At the same meeting that I mentioned, there was a very knowledgeable person who lived in Australia for, I'm sorry, in, in China. He was from Australia, in China for many, many years. And he gave this excellent talk in which he said, we can tell Xi Jinping that he should do all these things, but that's not his central preoccupation. His central preoccupation is making sure that the Communist Party retains absolute power and that nothing is done that compromises that. Now, having said that, if on his watch the economic situation gets worse and worse, that in turn could pose a challenge to his rule, if not to the Communist Party's rule. I think that's unlikely, but I'm sure that he has thought about that. The The other big problem the Chinese face is the demographic problem. Mm. Because of Mao's uh, one-family, uh, one one-child policy, their population is shrinking, and it's getting much older. So that has implications for the labor force. It has implications for a shrinking tax base that has to support more and more um, older people. It has implications for revenues that the state has and can invest in the economy. So they're facing some really, really big challenges. How this unfolds and what the Communist Party will do is something we have to watch very carefully. But at the moment, they are certainly facing big problems on, on all fronts. Nothing that's going to lead to a systemic collapse, but now all of a sudden uh, the Chinese are looking like they're four, four foot eight, not uh, eight feet tall. Maybe we should look at them at five eight and struggling with problems like a lot of a lot of countries do. But there's no question. This at the moment, this is the most serious problem that Xi Jinping has faced, and because he has so much power concentrated in his hands, anything that goes wrong, he can't attribute it to somebody else. That's, that's, that is a great point. Uh, Professor Rajan Menon, I, I try to give my guests the last word here on the show. Uh, we're right up against the, the end of the hour. I think we can go a couple minutes beyond. Uh, what, what final thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners on the topic of, of the Global South, the non-aligned movement, and uh, the new political uh, clout that it's starting to wield uh, uh, in the competition in the world between the liberal democratic uh, order of generally the West and sort of these rising powerful nations like uh, China and Russia? It's this, that as remote as the global South may seem to the day-to-day concerns of Americans, that in many, many ways what happens there at some, at some level begins to travel north, whether in the form of refugees, for example, or whether in the form of famine and food shortages that people watch on television are, and are just appalled by and want something to be done whether in the form of climate change, which if it doesn't, um, if progress is not made on that front there, because it's a global phenomenon, we cannot get to where we need to in terms of arresting climate change. So the big challenge is convincing people of the global south, in fact, does matter that it's not a fourth order priority. It may not be a first order priority, but it ought to be a much higher priority. And we'll have to uh, close it out there, Professor Rajan Menon, uh, currently the director of Grand Stra- the Grand Strategy Program at Defense Priorities, a D.C.-based think tank. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today here on National Security This Week. Are, are, there any, uh, are there any publications that you would point to that our listeners could look up and uh, learn more about some of the work that you've been doing? Um, the best way is just probably to Google me, and you'll find a lot of things. But uh, I've written some recent pieces in the New York Times. I have a Substack that people can hunt down my email and ask for. I write a lot for the British paper, The Guardian, Hmm. um, Foreign Affairs magazine that may be known to your listeners. So I'm I'm kind of out there, not not difficult to find. Okay. Thank you, Rajan Menon, for spending time with us this morning here on National Security This Week. Thanks, John. It's been fun. Thank you very much. And, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. 
Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish of your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series. 